familiarity is a very, very um, major component of good UX. You know, you kind of find yourself as a UX architect or a person who creates experiences being very aware of what's on that inner circle of familiar. And so someone has to represent that end user at that table with a vision and kind of push that development team um, to, to go beyond what they think is possible, to try to challenge them to creating experience that, experiences that are hard. Beg for that project. Let me just build a bot for my team. Let me just build a bot for our internal team. Even if it's outside of, you know, like, hey, let's just find out if our team has a group of designers, architects, user research folks that are interested in the area, you know, informally kind of gather and say, hey, let's, let's just as a team build something together. Welcome back to Invisible Machines. I've been describing this podcast as existing at the intersection of UX and AI. As I collaborated with Rob Wilson on our book, Age of Invisible Machines, he and I spent a lot of time talking about the ways that conversational AI represents the next phase of experience design. One of the main goals of UX has always been reducing the amount of friction users encounter when working with technology. A conversational interface reduces that friction to almost nothing. When users can just ask a machine for help, whether by speaking out loud or typing a message, uh, the relationship between people and technology fundamentally shifts. But just because these experiences aren't primarily visual in nature doesn't mean they don't need to be designed. We need designers challenging technologists with a vision for end user experience. Rob's been working with conversational AI for 20 years, but before that, he founded one of the world's first experience design agencies. He's a real UX pioneer, and I was eager to pick his brain a bit about the, the changing role of the experience designer in this new AI-enabled world. So let's get to that conversation right now. All right, Rob. Uh, so I've been describing this podcast in the intro frequently as existing kind of at the intersection of UX and AI. So what I was hoping to talk a little bit about today is is, is what sits at that intersection and, and what designers need to be thinking about uh, as they kind of prepare to bring more AI into their work. Uh, so, so let's go from there. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I somehow kind of think of this more of like, what is it? What is at the intersection of AI and UX, especially conversational AI? I almost would say they're they're parallel streets. They don't intersect right now. <laughs> I mean, that's my experience with most UXers out there. Is they're not they're not intersecting, um, and we're trying to. I think that's you know, that's just a big part of what we're trying to do here is Let's create that intersection yeah it's like come on guys these streets should intersect we need these people <laughs> badly horribly um so why are there why are they not intersecting is probably the bigger question you know not what's at the intersection that's more of like what well, will be at the intersection when they finally intersect uh yeah and that's i think both are fascinating questions to explore but the first is why why aren't they intersecting and 
I've given a lot of thought to this. Um, I've been puzzling this for a while because, you know, in order to try to create that intersection, you have to understand, you know, what is it that's preventing them, this, this huge community of UX folks and designers from engaging in conversational AI in the way that uh, I think the world needs them to. And um, oof, I would say that the the latest, you know, theory at this moment um, from being in UX for so long is that um, familiarity is a very, very um, major component of good UX. You know, you, you kind of find yourself as a UX architect or a person who creates experiences being very aware of what's on that inner circle of familiar. You know, we've got this sort of donut, right? And in the center of the donut, the hole, um, you know, we've got this, we've seen it all before. Things that are very familiar to us, drop down menus, check boxes, these are like very familiar. Uh, a lot of that is dictated by the operating systems you know, that we're all used to, they tend to lead the charge on creating the inner circle of familiarity. Um, and so, you know, a lot of design happens in that inner circle of nobody's invented anything new, nobody's created anything unique, they're just copying other things that are familiar to people, and that drops cognitive load, right? So all of this is on a continuum of how much cognitive load do we want to provide uh, or do we want to, you know, infect on people um, when we design something. The lower the cognitive load, the less friction, the more likely they are to complete a task. And so when it comes to all this productivity, you know, cognitive load is, is a high consideration for designers. So familiarity then weaves and connects super closely with, you know, the cognitive load. Um, and then you got like the the better designers, I would say, the, the sort of level two designers, which sit in the donut part, right? Which is they create and design experiences that are familiar enough, but but not exact copies when they sit in that, area of novel and and fresh but not outside of the donut which is unfamiliar um and high cognitive load so without a lot of examples of good experiences you know you could sort of look at the the donut hole for conversational ai and say it's it's barely a hole, <laughs> you know, it's like a pinhole. There's just not a lot of great experiences out there um, that people have on a regular basis to inspire uh, this group. So therefore, most anything they design is gonna be quite unfamiliar. Unfamiliar to them, unfamiliar to the end user, and in essence, sit outside of the donut altogether. And so until we, it's just a chicken or the egg, until we have more examples of great experiences utilizing both extralingual and lingual 
components like, you know, imagery and interactions and micro UIs within conversation. Um, until we have more examples of that, then we're going to see that designers live inside the familiar zone. And so we're, they're sort of waiting for the, you know, the market to catch up to them to care about it. Um, yeah. and, and so it is a chicken and the egg because we don't have great experiences because they're not engaged. So we need some of these designers to take these risks, um, particularly the good ones, right? That can set the bar to create what's familiar. Um, I think that's coming really soon. You know, um, Microsoft is talking about now basically having a chat GPT in all of their products just across the board. Um, so what we see is the OS providers, again, potentially leading the charge here and saying, well, you know, once they carve a path to good experiences for the rest of us to follow, yeah. then they'll create that familiar zone and then we'll engage the community more broadly. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we'll just keep trying to inspire designers to think beyond just language, to think of conversational AI as multimodal, to have both visual and linguistic components within them and to reinvent how they think about it um, and set the bar for the rest of the design community. I don't know what well, you've said a, a few times that, uh, that we really need designers. Yeah. Um, to step up and do this work. Uh, and, and then you talk about how these big OSs are kind of leading the charge, but is that not really ideal? Would it be better to have, do you think, um, you know, more designers kind of out there on the fringes trying to explore that way, especially given how how quickly things change with this technology and how, how, how accelerated everything is around it? Yeah, yeah, there's no question. I mean, it's sort of like the original web pages being designed by developers, you know, they just look terrible. Um, but we need, we need all of the ingredients and the mechanics of, you know, what good design is like empathy, user research, um, creative thought, problem solving, um, people who lack the constraint of the technology don't limit themselves to what the technology can do, but um, Imagine outside of the technology what the ideal experience is and challenge the technologists to come up with solutions to build those, right? It's the way you think of designers setting the bar for technologists. You know, they they set the bar for, and and they challenge them, right? And without them at the table, then the, the technologists, you know, aren't challenged enough. You know, they're challenged by how fast they can make something, uh, how easy they can make it for the developer to create, but now how easy they can make it for the end user to operate. And so someone has to represent that end user at that table with a vision and kind of push that development team um, to, to go beyond what they think is possible to try to challenge them to creating experience that experiences that are hard uh 
hard to pull off, you know. I was I was thinking about this the other day where I was, you know, one of the one of the ways to make chat GPT work is context. Like context is everything. You want it to work well, provide it the context. Uh and and I came up with a simple example, which is just trying to get chat GPT to greet you based on the time of day. Right? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Yeah. It it doesn't know the time of day. Like that's not how it works. It predicts the next word, but it has no sense of what time of day it is for where wherever that model's running, whatever server that model's running on. And it has no sense of what time of day, even more importantly, to the end user that's interacting with it. It's just it's just predicting next word, right? Um yeah. But if you tell it the time of day, right, it makes that next word prediction account for it. And it is more likely to include it. So getting it to say good morning requires you to tell it it's morning. So I thought about from a developer standpoint, you know, for anybody listening to that, it's like, well, that seems like it should be able to do that pretty easy, right? Like, God, it can write an essay. How could it not know mm-hmm. if it's morning or night or afternoon? Like, come on, this has got to be easy, right? And so I went through the steps. Like, first step is no, you got to tell it it's morning. Second step is before you can tell it it's morning, you got to know who's talking to it and where they're talking to it from and what time zone they're in and then what time it is. And then if that's morning, all of that, let's call it code, all that logic happens and needs to happen outside of chat GPT. And, and then you can say, hey, greet this you know, greet this person um, based on the fact that it's morning. And then ChatGPT will do that, right? And and the more context you provide, the better that experience is going to be for the end user. That little delightful moment where it knows it's morning or afternoon or or evening is particularly handy when, you know, when it's relevant, Right. Like, hey, you're calling yeah. me in the morning. Does that mean appointments? Like, is this a is this a good time for you to call call back? Like, is this a good time? Well, I have to know what this time is, right? And and so you go through all of that, and you go, well, that's this a lot of code to figure out, and just to tell Chat GPT that it's morning. Um, a developer is probably just going to say, ah, oh, it's a lot of work. I'm just not going to I'm not going to greet them based on morning or afternoon. I'm just going to say, "Hi, how are you?" Just skip it, right? Yeah. Um but that just might be the thing that makes the difference between delighting that end user um and making them feel like uh you understand them and you know them and then feeling very generic. Uh, even if it's subtle. So these subtle things, they add up to an overall great experience, right? They add up to a halo effect that you get enough of these in the conversation and the end user, they may not particularly point out all of the things you did, but just at the end, they're going to have this feeling and sense that that experience was elevated, that it was special um, and that it was special as in geared and hyper-personalized towards them. So 
So who's going to come in and say, we're going to greet them based on time and day and challenge the development team to figure out how they're going to find out what time of day it is to that end person. Um, we need, we have this information if they're on a browser, we, you know, we can know this and, and as a technologist, this is something you can figure out. Um, but it, it takes someone pushing you to do it. You're not going to come up with that on your own because on a practical nature, you may say, it's, it's, you know, it's too much work. It's too much work. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'll just yeah, say, well, hi, how all, are you? Well, and all of that kind of points to an idea that we've talked about a lot that, you know, chat GPT is really kind of a front end right. looking for a back end. And, yeah. uh, and like thinking in terms of context is something that designers are certainly comfortable with. Uh, but I, I wonder too, if, um, uh, they're a very lot of, comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the, a lot of the current design that, that's out in the world in terms of like, that's attached to technology, I guess, has a heavy visual component or maybe the visual aspect is kind of the first tangible, uh, element of it in a way. So I wonder if there's a bit of a disconnect there as well, where, you know, now you're designing things that you're not necessarily thinking about how they'll be seen, but how they'll be felt on those stories. Right. Or interpreted by someone um, who's who's interpreting it as natural language and not as, you know, a visual design or something. Yeah, like that. you know, it kind of gets into this other area of brain activity, which is the geospatial side of it versus the linguistics. You know, our 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 linguistic capabilities in our brain tend to be much more powerful than our geospatial capabilities, and of course, it depends on the person. But that's a it's pretty well accepted general. Um, a generally accepted truth, right? Um, right. and uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm more likely to to be able to navigate through words than remembering, um, you know how how many ch how I got to you know point B. So if I, you know, if, if I find myself in a place where, you know, I, I whatever been to the post office in some city once 10 years ago my ability to re-navigate back to that city knowing that many things have changed and my memory is faded um versus my ability to just use language to ask people for directions right it's very clear that one's much easier i i'm not going to forget how to ask for directions to the post office um but i i am likely to forget how to get to the post office. I'm more likely, right? So, um, once we, once we realize that we realize that most of these dashboards we create, most of these designs, you know, even the language, right? The, the navigation bar, the, the menu that allows you to deep link, you know, all of these words, they signal navigation, they signal geospatial, right? How do I get to the place where I can check sales for the month? Um, how do I find, you know, these signal like, yeah, these are geospatial uh, um, tools that we're using to find our way around and navigate a UI. Navigate, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, we don't use these terms when it comes to language. How do I ask where the post office is, you know? Um, so we're using different 
areas of our brain with language. And yeah, I guess a lot of our designers out there are designed geo to create geospatial maps that allow people to discover things, you know, where they've never been there before. Um, and use sort of that tool set, uh, to, you know, to allow people to get what they want or to, it's an experience, a geospatial experience versus a linguistic experience, which is trying to understand someone's intent, um, how to solve their problem and anticipate what they're going to want. But where those things are different, where I feel like they overlap in the most important way is that no matter what you're designing, if it's geospatial or not, uh, you really ha have to get into the mind of the person and understand who they are and where they're coming from so that whatever interface you put in front of them is in context. And if you don't think about their context, if you don't empathize with where they are, what triggered them to get there, what they're looking for, it's going to be much more difficult to design an intuitive experience either way. Um, and so those tools that designers have of, you know, really understanding the end user and empathizing and thinking about the context of where they are, those are the tools that are so critical to conversational AI even prompt engineering on GPT, the more context you give it, the better it performs. So just like a graphical UI, the more context the designer has, the better the experience, the more obvious it is to the end user, the more useful it is. The same goes for GPT. The more context you provide it um, in the prompt before it uh, communicates, the better the experience is going to be. So it's all the same tools, the user testing, the user research, the understanding the user and their motivations, what triggered them to come there, all of this stuff is, you know, almost identical. And it just manifests in a conversationally contextualized experience instead of a dashboard. And it still has graphical elements. You should use graphical elements. The whole picture's worth a thousand words. Like, you know, graphical um, communication, the extralingual stuff has just as much a place in conversation as it has in, in graphical dashboard UIs as we know them. So, but again, I think most designers feel like they're left out, like literally left out of the conversation, right? Because they think it's all lingual. And because that's most of our examples, you know, they're voice-based interfaces that don't have a lot of visual components that partner up with them. So again, the more we see these examples, the more it's going to trigger uh, that community to get involved. So it's, it's like seeding the world with some great, great demos and examples of this working uh, in a way that is clearly superior to, you know, dashboard UIs. Um, this is well, going to go on, well, I think. I hope. I mean, yeah. we need them. <laughs> we need them. <laughs> if I'm well, talking sounds to like, them, um, we need you. <laughs> it sounds like there's a chance here for an, an even 
better alliance too between designers and developers, right? If like designers are going to be demanding this extra context, they'll have to turn to developers on yeah. the back end to try and figure out how to orchestrate the technology and, and find it. Because yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, this really lets experienced designers kind of apply their trade without as many constraints, right? They can meet users exactly where they are. I mean, they can, they can really create fine-tuned user experiences, personalized experiences in a way that, that they've never been able to before. Yeah. Yeah. What's unusual about, about this moment, I think in the UX community and the UX world is that this is a moment where the design, the technology is ahead of the design. You know, it's in the sort of internet work, you know, world, the designers have you know, been designing stuff that developers can't build. That's been the big complaint, right? It's designers have been ahead, just always creating stuff that that the developers are scratching their head going, oh my God, this is going to take forever, right? Always pushing the envelope. Um, and the technology trying to catch up to the types of things that designers and ideas that designers have and create. Um, so there's just all this compromise going on. Um, I see the opposite in conversational AI. I see designers not even coming close to pushing the limits of the technology. Kind of being very basic in terms of how they think about it. And um, again, I, I do expect that to shift, but um, the technology now is is ahead of most of the experiences that we have out there. Most of the experiences don't reflect the capability of the tech we have. And I think it's just because this tech is coming out at such a rapid speed. It's, you know, it's disrupting, you know, disruptive technologies. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, business leaders needing to push themselves outside of their comfort zones and kind of be willing to, to fall in their faces a bit. It sounds like designers need to also kind of yeah. be pushing their limits and making themselves uncomfortable and working in these gray areas a little. Yeah, I think if you if you if you look at a designer, you're going to see that the designer tends to um live pretty close to the business, right? I mean, it's business goals, business objectives, these sort of things. There's a lot of alignment there and therefore you know, the business wants to stay pretty familiar. Uh, they, you know, they're not big risk takers when it comes to, to design. They want it to look good, but they don't want to push the envelope. Um, so the same thing for them, you know, they're trying to s mitigate risk. The bigger the company, the more they're in that mode of, of, you know, uh, you would, I think it's just like any wealth management scenario. You have companies that, um, that are big enough and worth enough that they go into a, wealth conservation most, you know, it's risk mitigation, it's diversification, it's, we have something worth a lot of money, our shareholders want us to, you know, not take big risks and to try to diversify and manage this asset in, in such a way that we preserve wealth, pre you know, in the same, same principles around wealth preservation. So don't take big risks. Um, this is sort of the nature of, of, of having something versus having nothing to lose, right? Uh, so small companies have nothing to lose. That's why they take risks. 
Uh, big companies have a lot to lose. That's why they don't take big risks. Now we're entering the age of not taking big risks as big companies is risky. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, a new idea, dangerous. right? It's it's completely the opposite. We look at Google and what just happened, right? Not running fast enough on Lambda um, has given Microsoft new life in the search world, right? It's brought in a competitor that out of nowhere, really. People if are you talking think about, about it. Bing again. So, yeah, it's <laughs> happening. Thought. Is the Zoom coming yeah, I, back? Yeah. <laughs> and how fast did that happen? Yeah, Alta Vista. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what's going <laughs> to Ask Jeeves. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is perfect timing for Jeeves. He was <laughs> yeah. looking to be asked this whole time. Just ask Yeah, we were ahead of our time. <laughs> um, and it's no joke. Like, this could really happen, right? Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, designers though they speak the language of business you know honestly yeah. i think business trusts the ux community the ux community knows how to talk to business um yeah they know how to talk to the business side they you know they are that translator or that intermediary between people and and technology and and therefore you know since managers and, and executives are people and they tend to interact with technology through the eyes of their customer more than the eyes of their developers. Uh, you know, the, the design community is the bridge. Um, and so what we're looking at is, uh, you know, for right or for wrong, I think I mean, for right, but um, we're looking at upper management saying, I don't trust the design acumen of our IT folks. You know, I, I trust uh, that they understand technology, but I don't trust them to create an experience that our, that our customers are going to appreciate, and therefore it's risky. And so, so on one hand, they're saying, we got to run, we got to run, we got to adopt AI. On the other hand, they're saying, but I don't, I don't trust my team to implement uh, in such a way that they'll create safe and familiar and and great experiences for customers so they're in a way they're stuck right um and and so the one one obvious answer to me is like engage the design community like they're just not at the table they're simply not there i had a speaking engagement at frog recently frog design i was uh you know they're innovators in in graphic design and in interface design, like they, you know, they go in and they lead. Uh, and it, I found it very fascinating to see, you know, that, that, uh, from what I could tell and the folks that I were talking to, they're not, you know, they may be ahead in the design community on this thinking, but they're, they're far from ahead on conversational AI thinking. Um, just, just ahead of, you know, others in their, in, in the design world, but certainly, um, not caught up to, to where we are. So, uh, my goal there is to engage them, right? And 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 I, and I can see, 
in the folks I was talking to, I could see them looking for an opening, trying to find a place for themselves. You know, I could I could see them looking for where to enter the conversation and where they can provide value. And um, and it, I could also see the struggle at at that that not being obvious. And so, my personal opinion on that is um, start before the design phase. You know, start before you actually wireframe. Go back to user research and um, journey mapping and, you know, all of the things that we have all been fighting so hard to make a part of the design process for our customers. And, and, and don't worry about the manifestation of the experience until you've done that research because it sort of emerges, right, from that. Um, once you know the customer, once you know what they want, you can, you then have a basis for thinking about what that conversational experience needs to be. So kind of going to the, the front of the design stack, um, and doing all the things that, that are familiar. And then when it comes to manifesting them, you know, it's, it's just, that's where the, the taking some risks come in. I'm getting this romantic vision right now of, of, a, of a business leader and a designer kind of holding hands and just taking that leap together. I wonder yeah, if I know. there might be something in that because you were talking about how, how uniquely suited uh, experienced designers are to really communicate with business mm -hmm. leaders. And I think part of that might be because it, it took so many years, it took like a decade at least for UX practitioners to really kind of get that seat at the table. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's the same thing that I keep seeing is you know, the justification for budget comes from cost cutting instead of, you know, optimizing productivity and, and top line. It's always like, you know, how do I save on labor? And then they immediately go to customer service implementations because it's the most obvious, you know, way to save on labor in their minds. Like, oh, I can, you know, get rid of human agents. And... What they don't realize they're saying is, hey, let's experiment on our customers as we're trying to learn this thing, right? Yeah. Um, it would be much easier if business and design decided to take a leap together on internal employee experiences because, you know, those employees are, are going to be in it with them, in it to learn, in it to give them feedback. You know, they're a much better audience to practice on. And then once you feel like you've nailed that, then go to customers. And, and so there's an investment that says, hey, let's invest in customer first, I mean, employee first experiences. Um, and, and the business case that will inevitably pay for it will be the customer experience. Um, and so just thinking bigger and saying, you know, yeah, the the investment is ultimately the return on that is going to come from the customer saving side and the customer experience side. Um, and in the meantime, the employee productivity, you know, is a huge plus um, on top of it. It's kind of the cherry on top instead of trying to justify the employee experience creation of conversational AI through some cost cutting measure. Um, I mean, saying, yeah, you know, do we have a 
IT call help desk that we can fire people on, you know, it's just, it's, it's not gonna, typically for most companies, it's not gonna fund a useful conversational AI practice. Yeah, well, and if you start working internally with conversational AI, I mean, you mentioned uh, seeing the looks on these designers' faces, wondering like, where is my future with this technology coming in? Um, you know, if you're if you're working on it in house, there people are getting to see like, oh, it's the future of this technology is it's making my job suck less. Like, yeah, I actually enjoy what I'm doing, and I'm in, a little more inspired. And yeah, I mean that's it, the hope anyway. In the end, the summary I think is that designers need a um, they need a, they need something to practice on. They need someone to practice on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's really what it comes down to is give us a project and give us some end users that we can practice on that you know I'm not going to lose my job if I if I make a mistake and and so that's a that's a huge huge problem right now is you know the companies that are implementing want you to practice on their customers their customers when they're calling probably at the worst time right like let's, let's be honest when we talk about like customer service, you're not catching the customer typically, you know, at the peak of delight. <laughs> a lot no. of times you're catching them because they have a problem and they're unhappy. So there's nothing worse than practicing on not just your customers, but your your customers that are, you know, at their most pivotal moment of of their engagement with your brand and <laughs> saying, let's practice on these guys. You know, it's... Yeah. Now that well, and as an experienced designer yourself, I mean, I know that you were drawn to conversational experiences because they were typically some of the worst experiences that people were yeah. having yeah. with technology. So, and and that kind of continues exactly. To, and and it was for the same the reasons. Like, if you, you looked at why they were so bad, and then you looked at how often they iterated them, and they wouldn't change them for like a year. It was just like, don't touch it. It's working. Yeah, don't, don't touch break it. it. Yeah, don't yeah. break it. It's working. Why? Because the consequences is so mission critical. It's our customers at their worst possible time. So here we are with a brand new technology that can, you know, revolutionize how customers and companies interact. And and we're starting we're to... with, you know, the the most challenging time in the relationship between customers and employee and uh, companies. And well, you got to wonder too how many people are just like taking this technology and just applying it the same way they would have applied like a phone tree or something, right? Like they're not, they're not seeing what it can become, so they're just right. like, oh, let's just copy what we were doing, yep. and it'll be better, right? It'll be a yeah. better experience. And the answer yeah. is usually no. Yeah, I'm, I see that a lot out there with senior executives, you know, doing that risk mitigation mitigation thing where they they ask companies how much experience do you have with you know creating these and show me other companies that have implemented and everyone's looking for everyone else to take the leap um and you can just see that sort of mindset right it's it's i i can only justify doing this if it's going to save me a bunch of money on customer service calls um but then that's super risky. So I don't want to take any risks. Uh, and, but this is where I'm going to start. 
I'm going to start on the most risky projects that we can possibly do. And, and then they white knuckle it the whole time as they should, right? <laughs> They're like on a <laughs> roller coaster. Um, it, yeah. it just, it's just, it, it seems so obvious to me, right? Um, start on the merry-go-round. Yeah, it's not going to be as thrilling. It's going to be harder to justify. But, you know, practice on your employees. If your bot accidentally says all your products are free, um, you know, to a customer, they'll expect you to live up to that. If yeah. ChatGPT says, oh, everything's free. Um, but employees will just make a joke out of it. Um, but there's no hard consequence. Uh, it's not going to hit the news, right? <laughs> yeah. Or less likely anyway to hit the news. So, yeah, I, so I think it's space? just, we, we just got to get all the pieces right. We got to get designers to engage. In order to get designers to engage, we need business to start using this internally. We need business to involve design, you know, in the process as lo along with technology and then start implementing take some chances internally, get familiar, get some wins, build a vision for customer and then roll to customer and then just use that pathway, you know, always eat yeah. your own dog food, as they say, um, before you hand it off to your customers. Um, yeah, a great example of this is if you have agents, have the agent just be an intermediary instead of automating scheduling right away have the agent do the scheduling in the bot while talking to the customer and when they feel like that's successful enough when you feel as a company that that agent is unnecessary then move the experience from the agent to the customer and just do that skill by skill just once you feel confident and you build confidence in the interaction by having your agents using it, then you can deploy in that way. It's a, it's a fantastic way to mitigate risk. Um, so I guess the moral of the story is they think they're mitigating the risk of wasting money by looking for these clear ROI stories when they're actually creating risk um, and that the risk is much higher when you go straight to customer. Um, it, it, there's also a silo problem too because you know usually the people that are responsible for the customer experience are not responsible for the employee experience. So you need this and the budgets are separate. And you know, so it, it really has to be at a top level of the company that says like, I don't care where the budgets are. We're gonna invest in this um, employee experience and you know ultimately it's going to feed the, the customer yeah. the customer experience it's not impossible to imagine too like um, maybe a forward-thinking designer even in a big company uh, taking it upon themselves to work with someone in a internally to mock up an automation I mean yeah. there's there's so many tools available right now a lot of them are free that you could you could cobble something together that can represent like what that might look like yeah. and, and bring that to leadership. Yeah, it's a little harder. It's it's, a, it's another obstacle is, you know, it's just, you can scan an app 
in Photoshop and get somebody excited. Uh, you know, yeah. done it a million times. Um, you can't skin a conversation. I mean, you can. Yeah. You can. You can give somebody a transcript of what the conversation could have been. Um, but there's so many versions of a conversation. You know that we call them journey mapping. You know, you'd have to create. You know, ten. Depending on the on the interaction, you have to create ten different circumstances in which that conversation might have uh, happened. So you're looking at, you know, 10 different conversations that would be examples of, you know, overarching conversations. And then you would have to design within those, the elements, the visual elements. Um, and so it's just a new way of sharing and conceptualizing before you build, uh, yeah, we've been playing a lot with that. I think um, right now the tools just aren't conducive to that. That's something that we do internally, um, just because it is so easy to create. That we call them mock flows, where they're <laughs> interactive enough. It's it's kind of like what uh, Figma did to to the you know graphical UI. Oh yeah, it made it more clickable, prototypey. Same mm -hmm. idea here is. You know, especially in conversation, you need that interaction uh, even more so. Um, so now that there there are tools out there to to kind of prototype out some of this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the difference between reading through a conversational journey map and then right. just experiencing the conversation is is quite vast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than like, you see three screenshots that are beautiful, and everyone's like, "Wow, these look amazing." It's sold, yeah. right? Business is like, I'm on board. You show them three scripts, you know, and uh, they'll be yeah, like, I don't... Falling asleep. I don't get it. Um, you let them interact with it, and they're like, wow, it's amazing. But that's yeah. another level, and designers don't have the tools right now to pull that off. Um, again, that's... Yeah. It's a big focus of, of what we... You know what we do internally is is those mock flows. Is if we don't materialize it, you know it's it's just a bunch of abstract conversations and what feels like a lot of risk taking. So getting it's chicken or that getting those great great experiences out into the world. Um, it's going to happen fast though. It, it it is the big 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 companies that are adopting this, uh, and I think it's because of that. It's like the irony of the whole thing is that. They're the ones who have the most to gain by automating simple use cases like password reset because the uh, ROI of of automation at scale for them is so high that they can invest in that automation. It's an easy business case to make, right? Like we automate password reset, we can save this many hours and decrease our agent count by X or Y. Um, so since they have the you know the the scale to justify the investment they're the ones leading and so what does that mean it means they're going to be the ones that um create these innovative experiences that set the bar and since their customer bases are so big it's going to happen really fast it's going to it's going to go from people haven't seen these experiences to many people have seen these and now expect it from the smaller companies and 
So we'll see the smaller companies trying to keep up with the big companies for a change, which will be an interesting switch. Everything's certainly on its ear right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't... Well, all right, Rob, we, we could uh, we could probably talk about UX and AI uh, for another two hours if we wanted, but uh, I don't know. Maybe can we can we leave it with um, maybe some sort of rallying call for designers? Like if, if you're a designer working at a big company, what should you be thinking about? And maybe if you're a designer that's working for a small company or kind of a, a freelance practitioner, like what, what would your best advice be to those people? Yeah, my best advice is to look for that internal small project that you can get, you know, get your your team to, your, your managers to bite off on, to convince them that doing something internally, even if it's just your own team, is something that's well worth doing and is an investment in getting familiar with it. Um, because without a, a a practical use case to practice on, it's, you know, it's always going to be done in theory. And, you know, we all know that that's, you know, that's, that's great if you're going from high school to college, but for those of us who have jobs and have to be productive and justify our labor, it's pretty hard to get, you know, get someone to give you that time to just sit there and learn. So a, yeah. a sanctioned product project internally that you're going to deploy that, you know, sets a high bar for the experience. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, the good news yeah, for designers is we, about that. we need more of their help. Yeah. And yep. Yeah, so beg for that project let me just build a bot for my team let me just build a bot for our internal team even if it's outside of you know like hey let's just find out if our team has a group of designers architects user research folks that are interested in the area you know informally kind of gather and say hey let's let's just as a team build something together for our team um, it's a great start. Sounds like fun. Ah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time then. All right. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Invisible Machines is produced in partnership with UX Magazine. Be sure to follow UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes. You can also watch us on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Shout out to the marketing team at OneReach.ai and the marketing team at UXMag and our video editor, Michael Litvinov. Looking forward to connecting with you next week on another episode of Invisible Machines.